Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may have heard the news recently of a revival, which is not usually something that makes international headlines. It took place on the campus of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. The appointed chapel speaker on February 8th exhorted the students to become the love of God by experiencing the love of God and closed with a prayer asking God to revive us by your love. Students who were present later said that they stayed to pray at the end of the service and an unexplainable sense of peace settled over them. So they decided not to leave. (laughs) What transpired over the next 16 days caught the attention of the media and the faithful of all different stripes from all corners of the world. Now, there were several things about this revival that made it different from other revivals of late. Namely, its simplicity and its humility. Even once it had gained much attention, there was no attempt to make things more fancy or to impress the millions who had tuned in to try and catch what was happening. Celebrities attended, but were not given access to the spotlight, nor were seasoned revival leaders. There was no praise band, no PowerPoint with lyrics, no flashing lights, no mention of a financial ask. Tucker Carlson was denied access as the leaders refused to make the focal point politics, business, America, or anything but Jesus. Students and leaders on campus continued in the spirit they had begun, only ever introducing themselves by first name, strumming guitars, and invoking Jesus' name. In addition to inspiring awe and a renewed sense of faithfulness across the globe, the Asbury Revival also reinvigorated the Internet's worst trolls and most cynical voices. Those who profess no faith led the charge with cries of hypocrisy and foolishness. But then came the more subtle attacks from those who supposedly share the same faith. Extensive arguments were ignited over the title of the event, Was it a revival, an awakening, a renewal, or an outpouring? Many, including very faithful and intelligent Episcopalians we all know and love, argued it didn't count for reasons I can only understand as a difference of personal preference for different worship styles. And from the darkest corners of the internet came attacks on the character of the very individuals who were gathered to worship Jesus. It was an impressive showing. Now, we could spend the rest of the day debating the merits of this particular revival and the complete negligence of production value, our theological disagreements with the attendees, and the lack of liturgical framework. Or we could simply celebrate the fact that hearts were changed. When it comes to matters of faith, I wonder what it might be like to trust our hearts instead of always relying on our head. I wonder what it might be like to rely not so heavily on reason as the Episcopal three-legged stool orients us, but also on curiosity and wonder. This would require a dramatic rebalancing act for most who have found the Episcopal Church. 
After all, our marketing campaign in the 80s was a celebration of the fact that we don't require you to close your mind at the door. But Jesus weighed in pretty clearly on this head versus heart debate. In today's gospel lesson from John, Jesus has an extended conversation with one of the most faithful leaders of his time. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, meaning he was theologically trained, scripturally knowledgeable, and a teacher of the Jewish faith, meaning he was all in. And he could not deny the impact of Jesus's ministry. Under the cover of night, he went to Jesus on his own to see whether he could make sense of it all. I like to think of this exchange as two of the very best working to make their case. Nicodemus lays out his observation, and Jesus makes his initial counter-argument. Nicodemus responds with sound logic, and Jesus' rebuttal is about as coherent as describing the feel of the wind on your face to someone who has never felt the wind blow. Then there are layers upon layers of scriptural references packed into this short exchange that are very easily overlooked. Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This was a reference to a story well known by Nicodemus of God delivering the Israelites from attacks by poisonous snakes as they wandered in the wilderness. The next verse, famously John 3.16, makes reference to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac from the book of Genesis. Jesus points to his own death and resurrection to come that will follow in the pattern of God's extravagant grace and deliverance as experienced by both Abraham and the Israelites. To top it all off, Jesus highlighted the fact that someone of the position Nicodemus held was not able to make sense of it all. But Jesus was talking about the mysterious and extravagant love of God, and Nicodemus was trying to make it fit into a logical puzzle. Jesus was talking about the heart, and Nicodemus was listening with his head. There is far more mystery involved in matters of the heart than matters of the head. So if we're able to read this passage again and consider the full context of this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus, it seems what we come away with is actually a statement about the nature and pattern of God's love. Or as as one commentator puts it, God is turning and will turn the world around, redeeming even the worst of the worst, swords into plowshares, serpents into solves, crosses into trees of life, making all things new. It is not logical. It is not formulaic. It is excessive and generous, far beyond the scope of our imagination. Nicodemus wants to know how it's all going to work, and Jesus points to the fact that it's been working since the beginning of time. Now, many of you will recognize John 3.16 as it is the most frequently quoted passage from the entire Christian tradition. But when this passage is used and misused, it's not often given within the larger pericope of the story. For God so loved the world has been manipulated to emphasize the size of God's sacrifice for humanity, making all questions and counter-narratives irrelevant before they've even been articulated. But this is a mistranslation. 
The King James Version of the Bible used the word so, for God so loved the world, because in 17th century England, the word was used to mean in a particular way. Today, our use of the word so is much, much different. Or as one scholar puts it, John 3.16 is often misunderstood today as a statement about the extent or degree of God's love. Whereas actually, it's a statement about the way or the pattern of God's love. As in, for God loved the world in this way, he gave his only son. It is not logical. It is not a solution for an easy equation, but it is the way of God's love since the beginning of time. I love this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus for so many reasons, but mostly because it's not the last time Nicodemus shows up in Jesus' story. Jesus does not reject Nicodemus. He speaks his language. He engages in a deep and challenging conversation and gives him more than one entry point into the heart of God. We need both our heads and our hearts. But Jesus calls us to lead with curiosity and wonder, lest we miss the very point of having our hearts turned towards God. Amen.